Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hand me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being here with us this morning. And for everyone here, I pray that we would all receive um, something from your word today, that we would know you more, and that we would know more of who we are as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. morning, welcome to those online and to those here. My name's Andy, I'm on the staff here at Westminster Chapel, and I have the privilege of beginning a very short series that we do now most years, um, which is called the God Cares About series. We take a break from our extended journey through the Gospel of John to cover a couple of topics which we feel like we wouldn't immediately find as we're just working through a gospel, but we think they're so important that we do address them and talk about what we believe God thinks about certain global issues to help us with our thinking 
on those matters as well. We're going to be going through the start of life. We're going to be looking at generosity and poverty. And we're going to be looking at religious persecution, hearing from a guest speaker about our own brothers and sisters in other countries who are facing physical persecution. But disclaimer for today, I will be talking generally about the start of life, but I will be addressing the topic of abortion. And now there are four warnings that I want to give before I start. One, I am a man. Many say that women would be able to talk about this topic better or should only talk about it. And to be honest, that is just true on any topic I talk about. There would be women better at speaking about that than I would. But also, I have a real heart for us not to allow men to just take a step back into the shadows and say, this is not my issue, I will not speak about this, I will not provide my support, I will abdicate my responsibility. I think that is wrong, so I will do my best to show support and do it in the right way. But I am a sinner, and my tone or my references, the language or the lack of knowledge that I have may come through in this talk. Also, I don't know you. I don't know your experience. I don't know your friend or your family. I hope that I would give a very different interaction to you if I was speaking to you one-on-one. If I had taken the time to listen to you in your situation, I hope that I would deliver this quite differently. And actually, I hope I would spend most time listening and not talking. It's just the nature and the difficulty of doing a talk from a stage. But here, this is the main reassurance in this moment, is that even though I don't know your situation, God knows it completely. We saw those verses that Eunice read. You know me when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows every single thing about you. And this is not some weird big brother or nanny state just watching you in order for you to trip up. This is the kind of knowledge of you. If you've ever been round, you've gone round to a friend's house and they already had the kettle on. They already had made you a cup of tea and made it perfectly exactly how you like it. And you said to them, you know me so well. That's the heart of God for you. He knows you so well. And I hope through this talk he will minister to you. But the fourth warning is not about me, but it's actually a warning to you. I don't know if you came across this in the news recently. In Melbourne, Australia, there was a man called Andrew Thorburn. Now, to go back in time, there was a church, there is a church in Melbourne called City on a Hill, a church not unlike ours. And in 2013, they spoke about the topic of abortion and were not in favor of it in that talk. Now, in October of this year, Andrew Thorburn, was, uh, who had been a CEO of two national banks in Australia, a very respected businessman and individual, he became the chair, or the CEO, sorry, of uh, an Aussie rules football team in uh, Victoria. On that day that that was announced, the media went about their research duties. And they discovered this talk from 2013 because Andrew Thorburn was also a member of the City on a Hill Church and he was the chair of their trustees. 
So he'd been elected to this great job as CEO. He also attended a church that spoke about abortion many years previously. This was the statement made by the Aussie Rules Football Club the day after they had appointed him as CEO. They say this, the board made clear that, despite these not being views that Andrew Thorburn has expressed personally, and that were also made prior to him taking up his role as chairman in the church, he could not continue to serve in his dual roles as the, at the Essendon Football Club and as chairman of City on the Hill. He was asked to leave his position as CEO of that Aussie Rules team because of the church that he attended, because of the fact that they had spoken about abortion many years prior. So that's a warning to you. I hope this doesn't affect you professionally, but there is a chance. If you continue to be a member, because we promise to continue talking about these kinds of topics with as much truth and honesty as we possibly can, and it may become less and less popular, and it won't just affect us, we're probably quite safe, it may affect you professionally. I don't think the doors are locked, so... Uh, but the thing is, really, this nowadays is not a controversial matter. In most parts of society, this is not a controversial matter, the topic of abortion, because it is simply female health care. It's available by post, and it is the norm. To disagree or to suggest that abortion should not be happening is like saying that people should not get chemotherapy treatment or antibiotics. Nowadays, it's not that much of a controversial issue. That's why I think it's becoming more and more difficult to speak about openly and honestly, but I think it's important. Now, the approach I'm going to take is different from the last two years. Last year, we had Lizzie Ling, who we actually have her book over by the two exits over there. You can take one for free if you like. She's a medically trained doctor. She spoke from that angle. The year before, we have Howard, who's a, both a trained lawyer and a very uh, thorough and accomplished pastor of a church, and he spoke from every angle on this. I am uh, not qualified in any of those areas, so I'm going to speak from my own personal experience. And that is because I grew up extremely pro-abortion. So I grew up in a secular environment where I thought not only that abortion was a good thing to be available, but it was actually the right thing to do. I remember at university, I think this is correct, two of my friends had abortions while I was at university, and I endorsed both of those openly. I was very pro this matter. And as you can probably imagine, I have changed my mind over the last 10 years. Now, I don't think I have become a backwards bigot. You may disagree, and that's okay. But I don't think that's the case. And I want to explain why. And I want to explain that I came at this topic indirectly. I speak to some people who are not yet believers, and they say to me, I could not become a Christian because of X, Y, and Z. Certain topics that they simply cannot imagine changing their minds on because they're so socially important and integral to being a good person in today's society. They say, I, I cannot become a Christian because of X, Y, and Z. And I think the sad thing is, to them, 
Christianity has often only ever been presented as about X, Y, and Z, and has not included A, B, and C. I am not saying that the A, Bs, and Cs, the fundamentals of Christianity, are more important than the justice-related issues, but they are more foundational. They are more fundamental. So I'm going to try and explain how I came at this indirectly by being sort of introduced to the A, B, and C of Christianity, and therefore how it then led on to changing my mind about X, Y, and Z. And the first thing is this, God exists. Now, when I was at university, I shared a house. One of my housemates wrote his own humanist magazine, and the other was on the committee for the LGBTQ plus society, and I was the outspoken atheist in the house. I was the argumentative one. They were loving and open-minded and caring, and I was not. I would be the one getting into the arguments, trying to tell people that God was a ludicrous idea. My view could be summarized by this terrible poem. When it comes to the matter of matter, who matters, what matters, why, we can only appeal to our gray matter, so stop looking into the sky. I believe that the only thing that we can possibly know are the things that we could figure out ourselves. And then in 2010, you may not be surprised, I went on a whirlwind of a journey. And I'm going to try and tell you that in less than a minute if I can. A friend invited me to a series of conversations about faith around food. It was called Alpha. It was fantastic. And at, that, at those conversations, I was introduced to three new realities. One was a very welcoming community that were willing to love me even though I wanted to laugh at them. Two were a set of very credible reasons as to why these people believed that Jesus was divine. He was God's representative on earth and he was God. They were through his life, exemplifying what it would look like to be God's, the claims he made that he was the Son of God, and then the fact that he rose from the dead, therefore stamping the matter firmly and permanently, and proving that he was who he was claiming to be. And then I experienced amongst those people a very strong, tangible sense of the presence of God amongst very ordinary people. Those three things really compelled me. The last two, obviously, I tried to deny as much as I could for as long as I could. But half a year later, I came to a point where I prayed a prayer. I said to God, God, I don't want you to be real, but if you are, would you let me know? And he very graciously, he didn't have to, he very graciously answered that prayer. And I experienced God in a radical way that changed everything and turned my life upside down. In that moment, everything changed, but also nothing changed. What I mean by nothing changed is my opinions did not change in an instant. I was a pro-abortion Christian for quite a long time. God doesn't suddenly rewire your brain and change all of your views and thoughts. That happens gradually as you approach his truth. But here's the thing. 
My opinions did not change, but my opinion of my opinions changed. If that makes sense. If you come to believe in Jesus, you have to accept that your opinions on many matters will be either a little bit wrong or completely wrong. As it says in the psalm, some knowledge is too wonderful and lofty for me to attain. But probably the biggest change was not my opinion of my opinions, but actually my opinion of our opinions. See, I would say that I was an objective atheist. It sometimes winds me up when people oversimplify this matter and suggest that everyone who doesn't believe in God is just subjective. They only work on their own opinions, their own thoughts, and their own feelings, and then believers are suddenly very objective about things. I don't think that was true. I very much believed that other people's opinions were better than mine. That's why I studied. That's why I went and read books and tried to change my opinion to, un to fit with the thinking of the people around me because it was better than my own. So what changed wasn't that I went from being subjective to objective. What changed was the shape and the size of the object. Previously, I had believed that objective reality was largely brain-shaped and humanity-sized. So it was brain-shaped, it came from the human brain. It was our thinking that really found reality and discovered reality and almost created conceptual realities. And then it was humanity-sized. It was everyone's thinking together. That was my object that I was working with. And then when I came to believe in God, that radically changed. Because remember, I started believing in the Jesus version of God, not a generic God who's up there who we don't know anything about. No, the Jesus' version of God that he describes to us in the Gospels and he presents to us in himself. So the new shape of this objective reality was cross-shaped. What I mean by that is compassionate. The natural world that I thought was everything previously was not compassionate in any way. My one required reading for my degree was The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, that everyone is controlled by these selfish urges and powers. That's why we're generous to each other, because we're selfish. That's the theory in zoology. That's the idea. But actually, the new reality that I now believed in had a cross shape to it. It was Jesus dying on a cross represents to us the truth. And it was no longer humanity-sized, it was God-sized. Now that expands your brain a little bit. So, after coming to A, God exists, after coming to that realization, what I realized was my opinions and my opinions of our opinions had to be held quite loosely in my life. I had to be willing to adjust and adapt depending on God's opinions as well. So then the second thing here is B, God made me. Now I'm about to brag a little bit. Growing up at school, I was probably the boy with the best sex education in the school. This is because my mum 
is a very, very highly regarded family planning nurse specializing in contraception. I got all the leaflets before they were even published. I would sit down over dinner and watch programs called Sex Education with my mum, not the Netflix series, a lot more scientific. And when I went to university, she packed me two bags. One bag was full of、um, the Lego that I'd had as a child. Another bag was full of condoms. So I went to university with one thing in mind: the most important thing about sex is to not get someone pregnant. That was what I went to university with. That attitude. Then, when I got to university, I discovered actually the most important thing about sex is that you're having it. In order to fit in, in order to be normal, in order to be regarded as an adult, someone who's matured a little bit, someone who knows the world, and someone who can make friends. So, in all of that time, I was under this anxious and crippling expectation of our society: don't get anyone pregnant, but make sure you're having sex. And it was crippling. It was awful for self-esteem. It was terrible. It was only when I was 21 and I started reading the Bible that I discovered something quite different. That I'd never asked the most fundamental question there is, and therefore I'd never come up with an answer for the most fundamental reality about sex. Is this why is sex so important? Why does sex matter? Why does it matter to human beings? Because we all know it does. It controls so much of human behaviour. But why does it matter so much to God? Interestingly, this week we did a life group、uh, collective session, and one of the people we interviewed there, Carl Beach, said this. He said, "If you remove God's heart for the poor from the Bible, you would end up with a very thin Bible." And I would suggest that if you remove God's heart for sex from the Bible, you would have an equally thin Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. God talks about it a lot. Why is that? Well, I think if I could go as far as saying, if you don't have an answer to the question "Why does sex matter?", you don't have the answer to the question "Why do you matter?" See, as a young adult, I thought the worst thing about sex was the potential to make a child. After reading the Bible, it turns out the most wonderful thing about sex is the potential to make a child. Because God gave us sex, humanity, sex, in order for us to fill the earth with people to enjoy Him forever. Sex is the only thing that can produce new people, and God loves people more than anything else on this planet. And He made the act very enjoyable at the same time, which is a kindness and a blessing from Him. But this is why it's so important. God gave us sex in order to produce children and enjoy it. Therefore, raising children also to enjoy God. That's the main point. That's the big priority. When you live in a society that has divorced sex from marriage and sex from children so far, you can see the state of people's relationship with God. Now I recognise there are many people in this room. There are some people in this room who maybe can't have children, and 
That is the state of the world. There's many people who earnestly have sex and cannot have children, and it is painful. But I would say this, the people I know who have walked that journey or are currently walking it, I don't think there's anyone who's taught me more about the importance and the power of children and parenting and taking responsibility for those who are vulnerable. And they have done it through adopting, fostering, caring for people around them who have children. They have used so much energy of theirs towards those causes. But here's the thing as well. This is why sex is only right for marriage. It's the most powerful, it's the most potent, it's the most intimate thing you could do with another human being with the potential of creating a child. You should only ever do this with the person that you're willing to have a child with and raise a child into this world. That's why it's so important. Okay, I've touched on all the tough ground so far. So we figured out why sex matters. Well, why do I matter? See, the funny thing is, I used to believe, as this atheist, I used to believe that I matter because I'm a person, because I'm a human being, and I have equal rights, and the world should look after me. It was right of the NHS to spend over 10 grand looking after me as a baby and making sure that I was cared for and brought into the world, even though I had not earned any of their affection. That was the right thing because I was a person, a human being. And most people in this world believe and agree that human beings deserve to be cared for, especially the most vulnerable. So actually, the question isn't, why do I matter? Because the funny thing is, when I was an atheist, I agreed with where I am now. People matter. If you're a person, you matter. You should matter in society. You should be cared for, looked after. Huge amounts of resources should be put into your welfare. That's the state for every person. We agree on that. I agreed on that previously. So the question now shifts, not why do I matter, but when did I matter? Here's the, the quiz for you. Is an embryo a potential person or a person with potential? Is an embryo, a, a clump of cells, is it a potential person or a person with potential? This is the dividing line. Now, I used to think that science could answer this question for us. I used to think that science could tell us when something or when I turned from just a clump of cells into a human being. I thought science could answer that for me. And then I went to study zoology, and then I went on to study the philosophy of science. And I discovered, hear this, we never stop being a lump of cells. From evolution's perspective, from science's perspective, nothing changes. We just become a little bit more complex with a lot less potential. Those early cells have more potential than you do. Sorry, but it's just the reality. It's stem cells. They're packed with potential. You're losing all that very quickly. From evolution's perspective, we're all just a lump of cells that look a bit different, that act a bit different, but largely we're the same. So science couldn't answer that. And then I studied philosophy of science, and I felt sorry for science, because science gets asked to try and answer questions it's just not qualified to do. 
hey, science, you've just helped us create fire. What should we do with it? It's not my job. We then use fire to care for people and to kill people. Hey, science, you've just helped us split the atom. What should we do with it? We decide to use it to care for people and to kill people. Hey, science, you've helped us to discover embryology. What should we do with it? Science does not offer these answers. Now, just go back a step to A. If God exists, then I want to know his answer on this one especially. So let's look at the psalm. It says this, For you created my inmost being. Now, the Hebrew word for inmost being is actually kidneys. It just says, you created my kidneys. The idea is that was really the basis at that point in their scientific discovery. That was kind of the, the heartbeat almost. That was the center. That was the sort of smallest element. You created my kidneys. Now, I don't think God went, yeah, kidneys and nothing else, nothing smaller than that. No, no, no. As we've discovered more, God's just showing off and saying, I also did the DNA. I also did everything else inside of your body. So we shouldn't stop just at the kidneys, but go down all the way to the very basics of the human being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The womb is a remarkable creation of God, the safest place for the most vulnerable person. The place where he is designed, it's his sitting room. He sits down in his lazy chair, he gets out a whiskey and he starts knitting. And he knits us together from the very beginning. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I saw a woman in the tube this morning. She had headphones on. She was wearing exercise uh, shorts and she was knitting. And I was not very confident in what she was knitting because it was wobbling everywhere. Is God like that? No. God's hand, he had a trembling hand when he knitted you together. A trembling hand because he was creating a masterpiece. Every single person, a masterpiece that God is fearfully and wonderfully making. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now there was a moment even before my mum knew that I was on this planet, that it was just a secret between me and God. Your eyes saw my unformed body. That word is not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's used later in Hebrew writing, and it just means a lump, shapeless, lifeless substance, a clump of cells. That's what God saw. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This whole time, I was not my mother. I was not my mum. I was me. The whole time in the womb, from even before. But at that moment, as the cells are dividing, it was me. It wasn't my mum. I'm so grateful that she looked after me and I was in the safest place I could ever be. But it wasn't her, and it wasn't her body. It was mine, growing there. So as a pro-abortion Christian reading these realities, I came face to face with this question. Well, if God exists and he made me, was there ever a moment when I was not a person? Was there ever a moment when I was not worthy of unconditional care and love 
generosity and resources to keep me alive, just like now, no. I had to change my mind. Personally, I had to change my mind. God exists, and he made me from the start. So if God starts life in the womb, then he must care as much about us ending it in the womb as starting it in the womb. He must care about abortion. And it must be wrong. Because he started that life. And we know from the Old Testament, God hates murder. God doesn't want, it's in the Ten Commandments, do not kill. Um, that is absolutely right. For people outside of the body, outside of their mother's body, people who are born, it is absolutely right. God cares about them not being killed. He also cares about it for those who are currently hiding in their mother's wombs, growing. So all of that was kind of theory for me as, a, as someone who'd gone on this radical journey. It was kind of theory. It came down to reality, really hit hard when I had the privilege of making this video with a lady called Jenny Haslam. Yeah, so my, you know, my understanding of God's forgiveness has completely changed and improved. Um, it, you know, I feel like logically it makes sense that I shouldn't have a child, and yet God's love and grace means that He. He took my past away, and he's blessed me um, with, you know, with a baby that I don't deserve. I remember this one day, uh, soon after Noah was born. She was um, she was sleeping in her, you know, Moses basket, and um, and I just cried, and and Joshua was a bit confused, and um, and so I told him that I mean he'd, we'd already spoken about this before, but I I remembered this um, abortion I'd had, and. And how I'd been so ruthless in my decision to have an abortion. I, the first thing that went through my head, the only thing that scared me was the idea of telling my parents, you know, the idea of disappointing my parents. Um, I knew that I wouldn't want to keep the baby. That wasn't an option. That wasn't something I wanted at all. Um, and um, and so that was my that was my biggest fear, telling my parents. And um, it's really opened my eyes to how much we all need God because we. We just can't trust our own judgment. 
Um, you know, if we put our desires first, there's no way we can know for sure that we're making the right decision. Now, to me, it's, you know, it's very clear that that was a foolish decision, a selfish and heartless decision. Um, and when I see how much I value Noah's life, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I would often just look at Noah and cry. <laughs> um, because... Because I felt like I didn't deserve her. I felt so blessed. This gift that I just didn't deserve was um, given to me. Since I became pregnant, um, I, you know, God's forgiveness was a massive, was just this, sort of started a new chapter in my life. Um, before that, I thought maybe, you know, I would, I'd kind of, I'd understand if God wouldn't want me to have children, um, because, you know, because of how I'd treated this previous pregnancy. Um, but I, can't, I didn't understand how much God forgives us and how he, you know, totally removes our, our past from us. Um, and it, you know, it, it opened my eyes to the love God has for us. But, that's who God is. He, he just loves us. He lo loves every single one of us. And it doesn't matter what we've done. He, he has the power to change us. We don't know how God works, but um, all, all I know is that he is good. And that He's rewarded me with, you know, more than I could ever have wanted for, wanted. We want to be a people who cares in the same way that God cares. He cares for the unborn child and he hates bloodshed. He hates watching them from his privileged position, watching them in the womb be killed. As he was planning to knit them together, someone else had different plans for the fate of that child. He hates that, and that truth needs to be known by people, 
He wants the church to continue talking about this, and that's why we do. We commit to continue talking about these issues, hopefully with sensitivity and love, but with the truth. If you want to be involved in continuing to pray, you can obviously pray. We'd also encourage you, there's a great website, care.org, where you can find out more information. That's where you can sign petitions that go to government and that kind of thing. But God and God also cares for the father and the mother, the relatives, whoever it might be who's been involved with an abortion or affected by an abortion and feels remorse and guilt and is held captive by the sin and wants to confess. So we as a church commit to being a safe place and a safe space for you to talk. Whether you've been affected by it, it was 50 years ago, five months ago, or currently you're trying to make one of the hardest decisions of your life. We want to be a place, a safe place, where someone can talk about it without feeling condemned. Now we'd encourage you two places. The gate is our pregnancy crisis center, that we have flyers at the bookstalls just over there. You can pick one of those up and I'll tell you the two different reasons why you might want to do that. One, you might want to talk in a confidential place about your situation and just be listened to and cared for. And you can contact the gate for that. You could also contact our pastoral care team. It's just talk to me at westminsterchapel.org.uk. Or your life group leaders, if you wanted to share with them, and then they might um, try and... If, if they feel like it's too much for them, then involve some of our pastoral care team as well. But also, we want to be and we commit to being a people who care about this and do the right thing and try and care and provide those places. So the other reason why you might want to grab one of the gate flyers is they would love volunteers from this church to be trained by them, to be able to listen to people and deliver the service of the gate it is a service for anyone of any worldview. It doesn't push one worldview or another, but it, it is housed here. We, uh, the office is here. Fiona helped me construct this talk and um, sort of gave, gave me so much reassurance. It's a phenomenal organization. So if you want to train with them and be on their team, that'd be fantastic. If you don't feel like that's quite right for you, you've got a different kind of way of acting with people, then being on the trustees could be for you. They really do want trustees, people who are willing to um, uh, join the trustee board and be involved with decision-making and that kind of thing. So we'd encourage you to do those things. Let me just finish. It's, I know it's a hard one, but let's, let's go into worship. So if the band can come up. And I think, let's all hear these incredible verses from the end of the psalm. It says this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, my confused thoughts, my disturbed thoughts, my worried thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, you designed us to experience eternal life, given to us by Jesus, who hung on a cross as vulnerable as an unborn child 
And he did it so that his persecutors, the powerful people who killed him, could be forgiven. He shed his blood for them. You've shed your blood for us, that we might have eternal life. So, Lord, we bring our sins before you, we confess them, and we say, now, Lord, lead us in the way of eternal life as we respond in worship and as we sing and as we think about these things, Lord. Guide us in your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.